welcome on my next guest. We've got three-time Super Bowl champion, two-time Pro Bowler, broadcasting legend, and Cowboys great. We've got Mr. Daryl Johnson. Moose, how's everything going for you? Everything's good, Zach. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So we're about a week and what, two weeks away from free agency. Um, season's wrapped up, kind of looking towards next year. The one thing I want, want to ask you about, so there's been some, some news in recent days about uh, proposed rule changes. I want to ask you your thoughts on potentially maybe modifying the onside kick rule and also Baltimore's, I don't know if you saw, they had a suggestion to maybe change how the overtime um, begins. I wonder your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the one that I thought was was really interesting was the one that the Buffalo Bills proposed. Uh, I, I've always felt that, uh, you know, if we're trying to get opportunities for minority coaches, the one thing we've got to do, we've got to open up that window and have it equitable for everybody there. So uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what the response is by the league to that. I thought that that was a, a good proposal. I've never been a real big fan of that. Uh, just a limited time because you're in the playoffs. You're trying to get your team ready and to sneak off and do some things and just try and sneak it into a window. Uh, you know, let's just try to level that playing field as much as we can. Uh, the onside kick rule, <laughs> uh, you know, anything we can do to make that uh, that play a little bit safer. Uh, I was one of the guys out on the wing, uh, you know, back in the day uh, in the position to block to allow the guy behind me to catch uh, or had to make the decision to catch it myself or, or field it myself. Um, some of the some of the bigger collisions I've had uh, have come on onside kick. So uh, if we can uh, if we can help that out a little bit, that'd be great. Uh, and, and then over time, uh, I boy, I think we're going to we're going to continue to keep trying to figure this one out. I, I like it right now. I like the fact that if you go down and score a touchdown, game's over. Uh, if you go down and kick a field goal, the other team gets an, a, a possession, an opportunity to tie. Uh, that was one of the things that, that bothered me in overtime was the ability to win the game on a field goal. Uh, so I, I kind of like where it is right now uh, from a time standpoint. I, I think we just kind of let, let it stay where it is. You know, that, that's my opinion. I think overtime is always going to be challenging. Uh, I, I do not like what they do in college. I do not like that at all. Uh, you know, the spring leagues, I was with the Alliance and I was with the XFL and we, we, we did some unique things from an overtime perspective. Um, and, and we had some things built in during the course of the game, you know, to try and prevent, uh, you know, the situation from getting down to being in a tie game. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe something else to look at is not just getting to the point at the end of the game when it's a tie and we got to go to overtime or some things we can put in that 60 minute time frame there to incentivize, you know, teams to, to, to try something else to, to get off those, those numbers that are going to force us into overtime. And so I want to ask you about your thoughts on the Cowboys season. Obviously, I had a major injury to Dak Prescott early on. Season really didn't go as planned in uh, Mike McCarthy's first year. Um, what were your thoughts overall just on the season as we approach free agency? It had to be disappointing for everybody, um, you know, especially once the injury happened. You know, Dak was able to keep pace uh, with the opposition. Uh, the defense was really struggling to kind of find their way. Uh, I'm a Mike Nolan fan. I like Mike Nolan. Uh, that was going to be a really tough trans transition going from a Rod Marinelli style defense to a Mike Nolan style defense, and then you don't have any offseason to, to, to help you do that. Uh, you're going to have to dramatically change your personnel. Uh, you know, the style of player in that defensive front uh, that works for Rod Marinelli is not going to work so well for the Mike Nolan style. So you're, you're transitioning scheme and personnel uh, in, in a season, in an offseason, uh, where there was just not enough time to do it. So I think we, we saw some warning signs early on, and, and they just couldn't get the ship righted during the course of the season. But in the beginning, when Dak was there, I mean, they were shootouts, but, you know, there was an opportunity for them with the ball in hand, you know, to win the game at the end. And, and they were just unable to do that. So it, it's interesting to see what would happen, you know, if they're able to knock off the Rams, if they're able to knock off the Falcons, you know, get on some type of roll early in the season. Uh, but obviously that wasn't the case. So you know, once the injury happened, things just kind of snowballed. And, you know, unfortunately that, that that's what a six and 10 season is going to have 
something like that occur. You're going to have something that really kind of changes, you know, the course of your season early on and, and, and the inability to kind of to navigate through that. Are there any guys, I know there, there's some rumored cap casualties coming up with the reduced salary cap. Are there any guys you would not be surprised to see that are on the hot seat? Uh, don't really know the, the cap number as well, uh, but I, I don't think this is a Dallas Cowboys situation. I think this is about 27 teams around the league. There's about four or five uh, that, that have done a good job managing the cap and, and, and are coming into a, a 2021 season uh, where there's going to be a reduction in the salary cap for the first time. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think Dallas is the only team in that position. I, I think you're already starting to see some of the decisions made, um, you know, saving a couple million here, a couple million there. Uh, the, the big problem with Dallas is, you know, sitting on that Dak Prescott contract and having to do uh, the franchise tag for a second year in a row if they can't get that long-term deal done and that that puts that number up about 38 million i think uh so at a time when you know the cap is being reduced you're going to have to step up and pay a big contract to your quarterback so i, I think that that's going to be the interesting thing as they go into this is how are they going to navigate that uh, because that'll impact every decision that's made beyond that you know where can we shave some things where can we extend some guys out restructure contracts to free up a little bit of money and then, and then you're kicking the can down the road, and, and that's all going to come back and get you at some point. So I, I think we're going to have about 27 teams this year uh, that, that are going to see that, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's proven to be a savvy way to do business where you just, hey, we're going to extend, we're going to extend. Uh, Deal with it later. Salary we'll caps, it later. Oh, yeah, it's always going up. It's always going to go up, you know, you know, 8, 10, 12% every year. Well, guess what? Not this year. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see a lot. Of, I think we're going to see a lot of change. Uh, you know, during the course of the offseason, as teams try to manage that roster. What percent chance would you give it that you ever see Russell Wilson in the Cowboys uniform? Because his rumors are everywhere. Yeah, I say zero. I, I say zero. Uh, for me, if, if, if Russell has his list of, of four that, that he would uh, be open to going, uh, to me, it's Chicago. If, if you really, if this is what you want to do, and, and everything that I'm reading is he wants to get into a style that allows him, you know, statistically to be on par with some of the other, you know, top flight quarterbacks, in the NFL, that's not going to work out in Seattle with a Pete Carroll style. You know, they, they run the football, they play good defense, they, they limit their turnovers. It, it's old school, but it's proven it works. Uh, we're seeing Kevin Stefanski implement the same thing in Cleveland. And, and look what Baker Mayfield's doing there. You, you can have those numbers. You're not going to have the 5,000 yard season, but you know, you're going to have 3,500, 3,800, 4,200 yards passing. Uh, but, but we're not here for stats. We're here for winning football games and winning championships. So uh, if, if Russell really is in this for what he's in it for now, from what I'm reading, to me, Chicago is where he should go because you're talking about Matt Nagy, who comes off the Andy Reid tree. That's the hot offense in the NFL right now. So if that's what you want to do, it, it all comes down to scheme. It comes down to style of coaching. It comes down to the aggressive nature of the coach. We've seen that from Nagy. It's very similar uh, from all the guys that we see that come out from under Andy Reid. It's very aggressive. Uh, they throw the football a lot. They're usually about 65-35 when you talk about a uh, pass run option. Uh, so, you, you know, to me, looking at the teams that he's talked about, that would be the one that makes the most sense. You know, even in Dallas, even with with Dak Prescott here and and what they were able to do, uh, you know, last year, throwing the football. This is still a team that wants to control the game with Ezekiel yeah. Elliott. So I it'll be different than it was in Seattle. But I don't think it's it's the big change that Russell's looking for if he's going to leave Seattle. If he's going to leave Seattle, it has to be the perfect fit. And I think that Chicago fits what he's looking for more than Dallas. You think Watson gets moved or is he staying put? That's going to be a tough one. I mean, he, he has continuously voiced his desire to leave, uh, even with some of the changes that have happened now uh, with staff and front office. It, it still seems like, uh, you know, he, he would prefer to leave. 
Um, yeah, to me, that's the intriguing one because it's a, it's more of a quarterback friendly contract that he's carrying right now. Um, you know, early in his career still, uh, I, I think there's a tremendous upside there. I was shocked, you know, late in the season, somebody put up Deshaun Watson's numbers and I, I double, I double take on him. I'm like, I, are you serious? I mean, wh why are we not talking about this guy more? I mean, those are phenomenal numbers. So obviously playing at a very, very high level uh, in an organization where he was not real happy with. So, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But to me, with all the talk about movement with the quarterback position, I, I, I think that Deshaun Watson would be the one that I'd be focused on right now. Interesting. And then are there any pretend, are there any guys that are free agents that you think might thrive in a different situation that you look forward to seeing what they do? Uh, I think uh, J.J. Watt opposite, um, I'm going to go blank on his name Chandler now. Chandler Jones? Uh, yes, Chandler Jones. Uh, that's, you know, that's when really unique things happen. And, and I think we saw a little bit of that in the Super Bowl with Kansas City, right? Both tackles are down. Uh, you're going to struggle on both edges. Now, that, that can be due to injury or it can be due to talent on the defensive side. You know, all of a sudden you roll out two really good edge rushers. That puts a tremendous amount of pressure on your protection schemes. Uh, so I, I think that the JJ Watt going uh, out to Arizona is something to watch. Um, he's back with DeAndre Hopkins, you know, that it, Arizona seems to be trending in the right direction, but they just don't have the consistency through the year. Um, you know, I, I, I think all of us thought that they were going to be a playoff team, yeah. you know, about week 10, week 12, uh, and then just didn't, didn't have the ability to finish the right way. So, uh, you know, JJ Watt may be the type of guy that gets them over the top. Matthew Stafford with the Rams. Uh, I, I think could be very interesting. Um, you know, Matthew Stafford has been in Detroit his whole career. And most of the time he's been under a defensive minded head coach, uh, Rod Marinelli, Jim Schwartz, uh, you know, you know, recently with, uh, going, <laughs> going blank with, uh, with the, the, the Matt Patricia. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think Jim Caldwell was the one time he had a little bit of a window with an offensive minded head coach. And, and that's just, it, it kind of changes everything. I mean, we, we saw it with Jared Goff when he was with the Rams with Jeff Fisher. That's how you structure your team. You know, it, it's, it's defensive led, it's special teams. You know, offense usually becomes kind of that third wheel in the three phases. Uh, you want to be, if you're a defensive coach, you're looking to play good defense, run the football, play good special teams and minimize your mistakes, which means you're not passing the football a whole lot. Uh, Matthew Stafford is now going to be with Sean McVay. And we saw the jump with Jared Goff moving from Jeff Fisher to uh, Sean McVay, you know, does, does Matthew Stafford, who, who in my opinion still has the ability to play at a very, very high level, get into that system with the weapons on the outside and, and a run game that, that's going to be vastly improved next year? Uh, I, I think Matthew Stafford uh, is going to be really, really interesting. Uh, and, and I really think the NFC West, just the entire NFC West is going to be fun to watch now. Um, you know, you saw everybody's reactions when J.J. Watt came in. You look at the, the potential for some of those defensive lines on all four teams, uh, the, the play of the quarterback on all four teams, uh, I, I think the NFC West is going to be in 2021 what we thought it was going to be in 2020. Interesting. Are there any guys you're keeping your eye on ahead of the draft that maybe you think about Dallas might look at or just guys that you're ready to see at the next level? Uh, Zach Wilson is the one guy that, that I'm most intrigued by. He seems to be the guy that's that's racing up the charts more than anybody right now. Uh, I had a friend uh, th that I work with uh, th that was on the Zach Wilson train a, a long time ago. A long time ago and and at that point he was trending probably late teens early 20s i mean he's all the way up to number two now yeah. uh, so uh, you know I, I think that that's uh, that's somebody that's intriguing i i want to see how trevor lawrence plays in the nfl there's been a ton of hype around him um i'm, I'm i saw some of his workout uh it, it was impressive um 
but I, I just want to, I want to see how, how he transfers from, from the collegiate game up to the professional game. Um, you know, other than that right now, for me, I haven't had the opportunity to, to dig into it a whole lot. Uh, you know, I, I think what we'll see now, I, I, I think, you know, last season with what happened with Kansas city, I think there's going to be an emphasis on, on making sure your offensive line is, is secure and you have depth. Uh, I think you can look at Dallas to see what happened in Dallas to see a very similar situation. Uh, when, when a season kind of goes sideways on you, uh, a lot of times it's that offensive line that gets hit hard. Uh, so, you know, I think last year, you know, you, you, you saw what, what Tampa Bay was able to do, uh, you know, kind of moving up and, and, and grabbing Wolf there at, uh, at 14. And, and, you know, they're talking about him playing at a, uh, at a Pro Bowl level, you know, during the course of the season. So, you know, adding an offensive lineman can, can really change your offense. And, you know, I, I think we saw that with Dallas back in the day, you know, about five years ago when you had Zach Martin and Tyron Smith, you know, playing at a very, very high level with Travis Frederick at center, you know, they had invested high picks into that offensive line. And that's where everything, everything comes from that, right? And we're starting to see that, uh, you know, the passing game in the NFL, the ball's coming out quick, we're, we're more perimeter based. Uh, so for a while there it was all skill players and quarterbacks. Well, you still can be able to run the ball effectively and you gotta be able to hold it and stretch it. Um, so that's where the offensive line comes in. So I, I think we've seen some teams offensively that have some great potential when you look at their skill players, but maybe not enough in the offensive line. And I think that's one of the frustrations that what Russell Wilson has shared out in Seattle, there just hasn't been that commitment uh, to the offensive line. And he's got roughed up, you know, the last couple of seasons. Yeah, one last uh, cur currently question for you. Um, who's the team to beat in the NFC East next year? Cause Danny White told me it's Dallas. In my opinion, it, it's Washington. Um, you know, a surprise team this year, it, it, they, they were starting from a, a much further position back than Tampa, but we were able to watch Tampa progress all season as, as Tom Brady became more, more comfortable week after week, not only in that system, but understanding, you know, the, the skills sets of his players, his teammates on the offensive side. Uh, you can see the light bulb went on about week 12. Uh, and, and then they went on that great run. Um, Washington, you know, we had them a couple of times early on. And, and one of the things that we knew right away, I, I called Washington as the winner of the NFC East in about week five. Uh, because we had done the Giants, we had done uh, Washington, we had done Dallas, uh, we hadn't done Philly yet. You know, Philly was kind of that outlier. They were the only team in the NFC East that didn't have any change. Um, you know, you expected them to run away with the division. There was new head coaches, new staffs, the challenges of the pandemic in the offseason. You know, Philadelphia should have controlled the NFC East last year. But early on, you could tell that Ron Rivera's message had gotten through to his players. Uh, they had bought in. Uh, and just that defensive front. It's kind of built the same way that San Francisco built their team when they went on that run to go to the Super Bowl. Um, you know, I just, you know, right now the offensive lines in the NFC East, I, I think all of them are going to struggle to protect against that Washington front. Uh, I, I think that uh, that Ron Rivera and, and Scott Turner will do a great job taking a, a step offensively. Uh, I, I thought they had some great additions last year. Um, you know, to me, they're the team to beat, you know, coming into uh, into 2021. Uh, which I don't think a lot of people would have thought going into 2020. I, I, I think you looked at that and Ron Rivera coming up and just you're trying to focus on football and getting your team ready to play. And you've got to deal with all these other things that are swirling around the organization. Uh, so what, what that, that entire team front office staff was able to do last year under all those, uh, all those challenges was really, really impressive this year. If it's a little bit more, you know, I don't want to say relax, but it's, you know, hey, we're not putting out fires everywhere. We can just really kind of focus on our team and go from there. 
you know, Ron Rivera is going to be healthy. I mean, he's battling cancer, you know, during the course of the season. I mean, it, it was it was unbelievable how many how many different things that they had to overcome, and yet they still win the NFC East. So, uh, and truth be told, the only time that Tampa was stressed in the playoffs was against Washington. That was the 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 best opportunity for Tampa to lose a game was when they played Washington. What do you think they do at quarterback? They just released Alex Smith today. You got Heineke on a minor deal, but he's only played what, a game and a half of them, but like three total in his career. And you got Kyle Allen coming off injury. Do you think they grab a guy in the draft? Do you think they go for somebody free agency, a trade? What do you see them doing? I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, you would think that they would have to go grab somebody in the draft. Uh, they had 19. Yeah. And they're going to have to move up. Um, so haven't been involved in, in both the Alliance and the XFL the last two springs. I'm, I'm very familiar with Taylor Heineke. Uh, I had a conversation with North Turner about Taylor Heineke uh, because he was, he was down in Carolina and just wanted to get his, his perspective on it. And he just, he, he said, listen, he's fantastic. He, he's the perfect guy you're looking for in that league. And, and I think what people have to understand is, you know, a, a quarterback that plays in college where Taylor Heineke played, um, that is old dominion. Yep. You don't have great offensive lines, right? I mean, you're, you're going to get very comfortable in being around a pocket that's falling apart on a continual basis. Some of these quarterbacks that are coming from the power fives and sit in a clean pocket for two years, three years, four years, and don't understand what that feels like is you're not going to get a clean pocket in the NFL. I think some of these guys that are coming from some of these smaller schools that can throw the ball. They've got everything else that's there. You may look at the level of competition that they played against and try to struggle to find out how they're going to fit. One of the things I think that's being overlooked right now is how comfortable they can be in a pocket that is breaking down. And, and I think the best thing that Taylor Heineke showed in that opportunity in the playoffs against Tampa Bay was how good he is when that play breaks down. I thought he was outstanding. Um, so I can see why they made some of the decisions they made at, at the quarterback spot. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think you have to be forward thinking into the future. Um, you look at it. If, if, if on draft day, we've got a kind of top of the draft board is quarterback heavy, maybe something happens, you know, on draft day. And all of a sudden that starts to shift down a little bit. Some of the guys that we expected to see gone, you know, by 10, 12, all of a sudden start to drift. There's been a run on some other position. Does Washington decide to maybe put some draft capital together and, and make a trade to kind of move up and grab one of them. Uh, but Knowing Scott Turner going into the season, if, if he was dealt the hand that he had to go with with Taylor Heineke um, and Kyle Allen, I think he could make that work. I really think he could make that work. Yeah, because when they had Haskins, he looked like a deer in the headlights. Allen was fine. Alex Smith couldn't move. And then you put Heineke out there and he I think he outperformed anybody's expectations in that wildcard game. So we'll see. It's very interesting to see what they do. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your career. Um, I saw that you didn't think you're going to end up at Syracuse and you were looking at D3 schools. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm from a very, very small town, uh, you know, up in Western New York. So, you know, if, if you're, if you're Boston college or West Virginia or Syracuse and you're coming across New York state, you're coming across I-90 and then you're going to dip into Eastern Pennsylvania and into Ohio on your scouting, you got to kind of break off and go about an hour up North into the far Northwest corner of New York state, you know, to find me. Um, so, you know, we, we weren't a football hotbed. Uh, you know, we've had, we've had a number of good players come out of, of Western New York and have, have had long, productive careers in the NFL. Uh, but, but there's just not a ton of us, you know, it, it's not a hotbed. So, uh, you know, recruiting's hard, um, you know, back then it's, it's much different than it is today. So, you know, a lot of it was done by, by you, your family, your high school coach, uh, you know, trying to work networks. Uh, and we had some good connections. You know, we had, we had Pete Rayo who was, uh, was a physical educa education teacher at our high school. 
um, who had some connections with the Bills. So, you know, he, he had some contacts into college people. Um, but, you know, for us, you know, it, it, it's just hard. It's hard to come out of that area. So I was kind of focused on, you know, Division three. Uh, I was a good student in high school. You know, probably my, my first pick at that time uh, would have been Cornell uh, in the Ivies. You know, Maxi Bond had just kind of come in as a head coach there. Uh, you know, for me, it would have been easy to get in on, uh, on the academic side. I wanted to continue to play football. I enjoyed the game. Um, so I was, I was going to play at some place. And then, uh, yeah, the, the Syracuse opportunity opened up very, very late in the process. Uh, I mean, we're talking December. So, um, you know, at the time I was down visiting Cornell, I also went over to the other side of the hill and visited Ithaca. You know, and at the time, Ithaca was a, a dominant Division three, you know, football team. And, and Jim Butterfield, the coach there, you know, we sat down to talk and just asking, you know, who I was looking at. And, uh, you know, he kind of went through all the, the, the typical D3s, especially back where I grew up, Buffalo, Buff State. Uh, you know, Canisius, uh, and then, you know, the Union was great. St. Lawrence was really good. Uh, and then obviously Ithaca and, and uh, you know, I said, well, you know, Syracuse has recently jumped in and, uh, you know, kind of looked up and he goes, Syracuse, he goes, I don't think you can play at Syracuse. So that, that kind of made my decision, you know, right there that uh, I was going to, I was going to go to Syracuse and, and prove Jim Butterfield wrong that, that I could play at that level. So uh, very fortunate. Uh, I, I, you know, I heard stories, you know, later on from our equipment manager. I was the last scholarship given that year. Uh, one of the players who had verbally committed to Syracuse changed his mind uh, as signing day approached uh, and, and went, uh, I think he went to Penn State. So a scholarship opened up last second. Uh, and the consensus was, let's give it to the kid from Western New York and keep the Western New York alumni quiet and we'll get a good practice player for the next five years. I have a question since it feels like every single person in broadcasting went to Syracuse. Did you, did you know any of these guys that are like up high in broadcasting now when you were playing on the football team? That maybe I didn't. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what I did know was the, this new house school of communications. I, yeah. I did know that there was a pipeline from Syracuse to Bristol. Uh, I, I did know that behind the camera and, and on the on the technical side, it was a ton of there was a ton of Syracuse grads, you know, down, you know, down in New York, uh, up in Bristol, working for ESPN. Um, I did know about Dick Stockton. I did know about Bob Costas. I did know about Mike Tirico was actually on campus when we were there. Uh, and, and for for me today, you know, I, I think Mike Tirico is one of the best in the business. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, just seamless from from football to Olympics to golf you know, whatever, whatever it is, Mike can do it. Um, so you were familiar with it, but I didn't go to Syracuse with the intention of playing football. And if that didn't work out, Hey, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll be in this, the new house school of communications. I'll just slide into broadcasting. Uh, you know, for me, it, it worked the other way, being on the analyst side and, and having the, uh, the knowledge of the game of football and then being able to work with somebody. So, yeah, I, I can't take credit for being that forward thinking and, and knowing that Syracuse had a great communication school that would open some doors up. I think they had uh, Dave Pash. Um, I know Andrew Siciliano went there. It feels like everybody, everybody's a Syracuse. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> did you, did, did you kind of feel like you had like a, like a chip on your shoulder? All right. I'm the, uh, if you found out that you the last scholarship, obviously thought you'd be playing D3, you're playing D1. Did that kind of feel you a little bit? No, no, it didn't. I, I didn't find that out until after that. that okay. all came, you know, that information was shared with me, you know, years after I graduated. Um, and, you know, for me at the time, you know, it really was just, hey, I, I want to graduate with no college debt. I just, I wanted to walk away free and clear. And, and I'm not going to lie, you know, the first, the first year was, was, it was challenging. You know, I, I felt overwhelmed. Um, you know, the athlete was, that I was encountering on the field was, was somebody I'd never seen before. Uh, you know, as a, as a freshman, uh, you know, going against some of these, you know, juniors and seniors, uh, 
Um, you know, Syracuse had some good players at the time. They, they, they weren't putting up a, a, a great record, uh, but boy, they had some good players. Um, you know, our freshman year, you know, we ended up knocking off Nebraska, who was number one in the country, and then went down to Gainesville and almost knocked off Florida the following week. So we almost beat back-to-back number ones. You know, that's how good our defense was, and that's who I was practicing against as a freshman. So um, it, it, was a, it was a big upgrade. So a little overwhelmed my first year, but had great teammates. Um, you know, it, it, the coaching staff was phenomenal. I mean, we're talking, you know, Dick McPherson was our head coach, uh, more like the father figure, you know, kind of old school, you know, learned under, you know, Sam Ritigliano. Um, you know, just you know, Duffy Doherty, I think, was a big influence on him as well. You know, the old Michigan State coach. Uh, and we had George DeLeon, Paul Pasqualoni, uh, you know, Randy Edsel, Jim Hoffer, uh, Clarence Brooks, Ivan Fears. I mean, th- these guys went on coached in the NFL. They went on were head coaches at the collegiate level. I think Edsel, was, it, was he at Towson? I went to Towson. Was he at Towson? Randy Edsel? He or was at UConn. Cal- you, UConn for a while. Um, he may have been down in Towson. Um, you know, it, it was just, it was a, it was a great staff. It was a great mix of old school and then young guys yeah. who were kind of up with what the current things were going on in the game of football. Um, so we had a great staff, we had great teammates and we had a great strength coach, Mike Wojcik. Um, So for me, it was, it was getting in there, getting bigger, getting stronger, getting faster, you know, knowing after that first year that I had a lot of work to do, uh, but then having the ability to have the assets around me to accomplish that. So really it became, you're going to be able to do whatever you want to do. You just have to make that choice. And, you know, you get yourself prepared for the opportunity. And I got an opportunity in spring football uh, going into our, our sophomore year. So it was my redshirt freshman year uh, in the spring. And uh, the fullback position was wide open to competition. Uh, and that was the opportunity and uh, and just took advantage of that. So was able to, to be named the starter coming out of spring football and then started three years at Syracuse when expectations for me coming in were, were not that at all by the staff. So, uh, but, but I'll credit... Mike Wojcik, Mike Wojcik is my strength coach. Jim Hoffer, my running back coach, who really kind of came in and, 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 and kind of relit the love of football for me. Um, and then just having great teammates and, and a great coaching staff around you. Who told you you could play in the NFL? Uh, we started to see some guys from our team get drafted. So you're like, well, maybe I'll have an opportunity. You know, maybe, maybe you know, come draft day, you know, after my senior year, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be at a level where, you know, somebody thinks that they'll have the opportunity to play. And then it, it was really, and I'll, I'll always remember this, you know, Mel Kuyper puts out that, that pre-draft book and I was on the back cover. He had me on the back cover of his, of his uh, pre-draft manual. So, um, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, meant a lot to me that, Hey, you know, people who do this, you know, have put you in a position where there's going to be an opportunity for you. Um, you know, Don Shula for the dolphins came out and, and literally said, we're going to take the fullback from Syracuse in the second round with our pick. Now, there was a big movement on draft day. Lewis Oliver had dropped, um, you know, that day down to about 25. So Miami took their second and third round picks and made a trade uh, and moved back into the first round and took Lewis Oliver. But but I had a good feeling where I was going to be slotted uh, and that there was going to be an opportunity for me to play at the NFL level. What was your draft night experience like? It was great. It was great. Um, family, close friends, uh, my apartment in Syracuse, um, just kind of hanging out. It, it was a little bit nerve wracking because he had the Miami incident happen. I had a good workout for Washington. Uh, I thought Washington was a possibility. Uh, they made a big trade to get Gerald Briggs from the Falcons. So they traded away their second and third round pick. Uh, so now I'm kind of like, well, I, I, I have no idea. You know, everybody's looking at me. I'm like, 
<laughs> well, Miami and Washington were the two I felt good about. Maybe Philadelphia. Uh, and then uh, Dallas. I, I think a lot of people forget about this. Uh, they took Steve Wisniewski uh, early in the second round with their second round pick and then traded that to the Raiders for the Raiders second round pick and then took me at 39. So, uh, you know, Jimmy, you know, was looking to get me there, but I think it, it, it I can't think the pick was 30 or 32, you know, felt that that was a little bit too high and, and could get some draft capital, you know, getting somebody for the Raiders. And there was already a relationship established between Al Davis and, uh, and Jerry Jones. So, uh, and, and Jimmy Johnson. So, you know, an opportunity there to put together a little deal on draft day. So w when the call came from the Cowboys, it, it kind of, it kind of came out of the blue for me, but Tony Wise, uh, the offensive line coach that was with the Cowboys, uh, was with us at Syracuse early in my career. Uh, and Dave Campo, uh, the secondary coach for the Cowboys, was up in Syracuse with us early in my career. So there was some familiarity uh, with some of the coaches that were going to be on the Cowboys staff that were on the Syracuse staff during my time. Eagles fans still flip you off? Philly fans? Yeah. Uh, you know what? some of the best compliments I've gotten are from Philly fans where they say, I hate Dallas, but I respect you as a player. And, and to me, that means a lot. Um, the rivalry back there in the East was, was tremendous. Uh, you know, I tell people all the time, they're like, Oh my God, what was it like to play at the vet? I said, it was hard to play at the vet, but there was nothing better than winning at the vet. So there's, there, there, there is a big rivalry between the nineties Cowboys and the nineties Eagles. Uh, probably similar to what the 70s Cowboys and the 70s Washington football team have. Um, you know, but for us, Philadelphia was the team that they were the last team in the East that we beat. The defenses were phenomenal in the early 90s. Um, it was just that was you, you were playing for something. We played in the playoffs multiple times. Um, there, there was there was meaning for every game when we played Philadelphia. That's where a rivalry is developed. Um, you know, at the time, Washington was kind of trending down, uh, you know, early, early on with our time in, in, in Dallas, you know, Washington shoot, they had the one year and it's still one of my favorite games we ever played. Uh, we beat uh, Washington at RFK when they were 11 and 0 and we were six and five. Um, and, and that's always been one of my favorite games. I think we walked down the field as an offense in the fourth quarter with a little over seven minutes to go. And we never left the field. We ran, we, we ran the clock all the way down. So uh, it, there were some, some, some times where it was Washington, there were some times where it was was New York, um, but it was it was predominantly the Eagles that had the big games, and, and a lot of people forget Arizona was in our division at that time, and, and that was that was one of the most physical games we played twice a year was against the Arizona Cardinals. You know, because I know I was talking to Chad Hennings, I asked me if I had any, any interesting experiences at the vet, and he said the first time he played there, I guess it recently snowed, and he said they told Jimmy Johnson to wear a helmet because apparently Eagles fans were throwing ice at him. Uh, worse than that, worse than that, the trainers came down the sideline and said, everybody put your helmets on. They're putting batteries in the snowballs. And at that time, a bat, a snowball hit right in front of us and a C cell, a C cell battery rolled out of the snowball, not double A's, not triple A's, a C. So as we're leaving the field, there's two security guys that have Jimmy, you know, locked an arm and they're running with him, covering him. And I'm about 30 yards behind. And I see the officer just go down and he had taken a snowball from up high, got him right in the side of the head. And there was uh, there was a C cell in that one, I think as well. Uh, and he was in our training room after the game. He had a, he had a Fred Flintstone bump on the side of his head. Um, and our trainer said he was very lucky uh, that, that it, it didn't hit him in the temple. So, 
you had that. You had, you know, the, the other thing is the uh, the eagle at the center of the, the field was, it was not turf. It was just paint. It was basically matted down steel wool. It was like something you shave cheese with. And, you know, the rule was, if you're going to cross the eagle, you have to get all the way across. You know, don't, don't get tackled on the eagle. And I remember Kelvin Martin, you could see him kind of hesitate for a second. And then he took off and he got tackled on the eagle. And he came back to the huddle and he goes, you know, how does it look? And he showed me his arm. I'm like, oh, my God. I said, you could probably go find that on the eagle and stick it back on. I mean, it was like somebody took a divot out of his elbow. When the police officers were leading the way, they didn't say moose. We need you to lead the, lead the way. Charge, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, over, get in front of us. You got your helmet on. Um, so I saw, I asked some Eagles fans, and they, they sent me something I thought was very interesting. Did you, did you and Jay Novacek ever swap jerseys in practice to mess with coaches? No, never did. Yeah, interesting. No, I, I think our body styles were too different. Yeah. Uh, and our athletic ability was different. They would, they would know it was, it was me running a route with an 84 on. Yeah. And they knew it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be me blocking with a, with a 48 on if it was Jay. What was it like being on Wishbone? Mmm, new poster smell. Okay, let's see the moose. Hey, you guys, come meet Daryl. Daryl, this is uh, Joe Talbot and Samantha Kepler. Kids, meet the moose. Hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Hi. This is Wishbone. Hi, Wishbone. That's funny, you don't look like a moose. It was a show that I wasn't, I wasn't all that aware of at the time, uh, but it was filmed right here in Dallas. Uh, it was huge uh, with the kids. Um, you know, we was did. Young, it, was uh, really, it was on all the time. Yeah, Barney, Barney was filmed down here, and Wishbone were filmed down here. So, so, yeah. so two of the the bigger kids shows at the time uh, were filmed right here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. So, um, you know, it was kind of fun. You know, with the Super Bowl ring tie-in and everything. Uh, but, but one of the big things they promoted was reading, and at that time, I'd been doing a reading campaign. Uh, with a with a company down here called Half Price Books, we've been doing it for about uh, at the time about eight years, um, so it was a good tie in there, uh, you know, to get that message out and get that one across as well. Yeah. And so speaking of that, so I saw you worked with a lot of different um, organizations: Special Olympics, Children's Cancer Fund, Cystic Fibrosis, and Literally Institute for Texas. Um, what? How do you find the time to give back because you're so busy? I, I think we all watched how Troy did it, um, and you know, tried to model after what he was doing, you know, he generated a foundation that, um, you know, he did the Aikman end zones and, and I think he's gone on and, and done that with Garth Brooks, uh, as a partner. And, and they, he had an extended hospital stay when he was young. Um, I had an extended hospital stay when I was young. Um, so that, that kind of hit home to me that he remembered something that was challenging at the time and wanted to make sure it was a little bit more enjoyable for kids that got stuck in that situation. Um, so you could see him kind of drive all his efforts into that. And, and it, kind of showed us, you know, find something you're passionate about, you know, find a way to ingrain yourself in the community away from the game of football. Uh, so for us, everybody, you know, Troy was a was a great leader, not on the field, but off the field as well. Um, so I think if you looked around at all the guys on our team during that time, they kind of found something. Now, a lot of those that you talk about uh, were affiliated with the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, there was traditional fashion shows, um, but we all tried to find that one thing. And for me, it was it was reading. Um, you know, like I mentioned before, you know, I, I was a good student in high school. I know the importance of an education and I know how much reading contributes to your success as a student. And you just saw some of the, uh, you know, the illiteracy rates down here. And what was, was surprising to me is I think sometimes we, we think of it as maybe, you know, kids in, 
in inner city schools or, or, or environments where you know they're not at grade level. No, th this was this was older Texans. Yeah. When, when I started, the the median age of the illiterate Texan was 32. So there's a lot of rural farmers and ranchers that you know didn't have the opportunity to to get a quality education because they grew up in an industry that was handed down from family to family, generation to generation. And and you worked in the field, you worked in the oil platform, uh, you knew that very very well. But you might not be able to you know balance a checkbook or do things around the house. So some of the stories that I started to hear when I visited with the people for literacy instruction for Texas uh, were along those lines, and, and it really it really hit home to me. And then some of the successes, you go to the graduation ceremonies and, and to see the growth of, and they, they would tell you like when he came in, he was, he, he, he wouldn't read, he wouldn't raise his hand, he wouldn't speak. And now we can't get him to shut up. You know, it just, he's got so much confidence. He's a completely different person now that he can read, uh, you know, well enough to get along through life. So for me, it was a, it was a kind of grabbed me right away. Um, and, and that's what we all learn from Troy. Find out the one that you're passionate about so you can commit your time and your energy to it and, and, and have everything work out in a positive way. Next time you call a Dallas Washington game, you should link up with Dexter Manley. He actually, I had him on. He actually recently started a foundation in the DC area to, to help raise literacy rates because they're so low in the inner city. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he was somebody that, you know, you hear the yeah. story about Dexter that came through all the way through Oklahoma State University yeah. without yeah. the ability to read at a really, you know, high school level. Yeah, um, so. so it's it, yeah, absolutely. It's something near and dear to his heart as well. Um, and, and I just I think there's a lot of people out there. And, and I think our concern is now that we're such a screen generation yeah. that, you know, that 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 ability to read to sit down with a book and escape for a while yeah. is being lost on this generation. Yeah. So you obviously blocked for Emmett Smith became he became the all time leading rusher. You spent a lot of time with Emmett Smith. What's your favorite story from your career uh, playing or just or off, on or off the field with Emmett Smith? Oh, there's, there, there's a ton of them, you know, obviously, you know, everybody will all automatically go to the, uh, the hall of fame induction. And, and that was, that was, that was amazing. Um, you know, what he said, how he singled me out. Um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to do the game where he actually broke Walter Payton's record oh. against the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, and we actually, you know, were able to, I was down on the field. My, my producer at the time, you know, gave me a wireless mic. I came out of the booth, went down to the field, did the broadcast from down to field level. So when he broke the record, you know, we were able to share and embrace and, and, and hug. And, and that that was my favorite one. Um, but we have one that, that not a lot of people know about. Uh, and uh, it, it, he was he came out and uh, he said, yeah, he goes, he goes, I don't know what Daryl was doing, but, you know, he, he went to cut the guy. And there's there's a great there's a great uh, kind of sequence where you'll see it. He, I can't remember the linebacker from the Raiders, but he goes over the top of me and kind of comes down and hits Emmett and Emmett kind of staggers and regains his balance and goes into the end zone. And uh, I had just gotten one of the worst burners I've ever had. And my shoulder was still jacked up. And then we're down inside the goal line. And I told him, I said, Hey, I said, my shoulder is dinged. I said, you know, on this lead, you know, I'm, I'm cutting, you know, which you're not supposed to do, especially down on the goal line. Uh, you know, you want to stay up and get a little bit of movement, give your, your running back an opportunity to find a running lane. Uh, so I went to cut and I got a little bit too low. <laughs> And he went, he went right over the top of me. I mean, his helmet came right down in Emmett's helmet. And he is, he has never let me forget, forget about that one. And it's like, how, how many, how many have I done the right way? And this is, this is what you're going to hold up. You're going to remember this one. So we always get a, we always get a little bit of chuckle about that one. Every time I see that highlight, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. My phone's going to ring or I'm going to get a text. Um, what was your favorite Super Bowl? Uh, first one first one 27 it was just it was magical from 
from the winning candlestick against the 49ers, uh, you know, the two week period, uh, you know, getting ready for the game, uh, the following year for, uh, for 28 was only one week, uh, was a little bit hectic, uh, but 27, um, you know, we're out, we're staying at the low Santa Monica, we're practicing at UCLA, um, you know, the way the game went, um, everybody on our team got to play in the Super Bowl. You know, if you've got a Super Bowl that's tight fit, you're going to have a lot of guys who are part of that team uh, on the sidelines for that team, but feel like, you know, yeah, I was there, but I never really got to get on the field. It, it was, it was awesome that everybody on our team was able to take the field that day. So yeah, 27 was just magical. Um, you know, the whole season, the whole run through the playoffs, uh, it's just, it's just one of those, one of those moments in time. And, and really people will say, you know, which one's the best, but that, that one's just a time frame that two, that two week gap from, from the NFC championship game all the way through to the victory against Buffalo. I just got one, one last question for you. Who's the toughest guy for you to block in your entire career? Eric Hill. Eric Hill on the inside for the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, maybe the original Ray Lewis, you know, a six foot three, 255, 260 pound inside linebacker that could run, uh, was on the field on third down. Um, always knew where 58 was, uh, especially if you were running a shallow crossing route, because Eric's thought process was if you're inside five yards, why should I try and run with it? We're going to just knock you off your feet. Uh, so you always had to know where he was that way. Uh, it, it was hard, you know, it, it, there was Seth Joyner was, was a handful at the end of the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, Carl Banks, you know, Carl Banks was like, he was anchored into the floor of giant stadium. He hit him. He wouldn't even move him. Uh, you know, I had an opportunity to play against Lawrence Taylor a few times, you know, early in my career, uh, you know, played against some of the best guys, you know, at the outside linebacker and inside linebacker position, but our game plan against the Arizona Cardinals was very basic. It was very physical. Uh, and Eric was one of the one of the more physical linebackers uh, in the NFL. Um, never made a Pro Bowl. Uh, I voted for him every year. Um, I, I just thought he was a very underrated player, uh, and he's just one of those guys that played for a team out in Arizona that a lot of people didn't get the opportunity to see play. Uh, but I always thought he was uh, he was a handful. Are there any guys in the league today that you're like thankful you never have to match up with? Uh, I tell you the athleticism, it seems from generation to generation, it just continues to grow. Uh, I, I tell everybody, if you, if you looked at a roster back when I played, you would just move everybody back. You know, the, the outside, the, the defensive ends are now outside linebackers. The outside linebackers are now safeties. Uh, you know, these guys are just bigger, faster, more explosive. Um, so, uh, it, it, there's a number of them. Um, it, we had some of these guys starting to emerge, you know, the end of my career. But now they're just on everybody's roster. These six foot five, three hundred and thirty-five pound defensive tackles that can run you down in a ten-yard space. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that's a unique athlete that's on the football field. You know, consistently that was kind of a, an outlier when we were there. Um, you know, we had Dwight Freeney coming off the edge with with God, what did he run the forty and four three something, four four something. Uh, you know, to be you know to be that big, that athletic. We're starting to see you know you know guys pop out like that. Um, and then there's this, this, this new safety, this hybrid safety, this, you know, 225 pound guy, six, three, six, two, uh, you know, 225 pound guy. He can, he can come up and stuff the run. Uh, you know, he can, he can run with wide receivers down the field. Uh, you know, people always ask me, who's the, you know, the biggest hit you ever took. Um, you know, there's, there's three of them. Uh, you know, Marcus Paul, who was a teammate of mine at Syracuse got me in spring ball. Uh, we unfortunately just lost Marcus, uh, recently this past fall. Uh, Chuck Cecil from Green Bay, uh, and then Ronnie Lott. Um, so those those are three guys, and those are all secondary players. You know, Marcus was a safety, Ronnie was a safety, and Chuck was a safety. Um, 
you know, those are the type of guys that that are you're starting to see that that physical presence pop up again in the NFL where, you know, everybody kind of knows you knew where 42 was. If you if you played against the Niners or the Raiders and Ronnie was in the secondary, you you before you got into your three point stance, you know, you found out where number 42 was and what what potential impact he could have on that play. Uh, and, and yeah, he boy, Ronnie got Ronnie got me good one day. Uh, you know, it is. Uh, Dennis Dennis Smith got me, uh, you know, w- with the Broncos one time and taught me a good lesson. You know, if you're going to motion out wide, you can't look back over your shoulder because if I looked if I looked inside, I was always worried I was going to drift towards the line of scrimmage and get called for a legal procedure. So I would look over my other shoulder and then I'd see it and I'd turn and go. And as soon as I turned around, he had just dropped down from the safety and just decleated me. I mean, he helped me right up and he goes, well, I watched you on film do that all week. You can't do that. So <laughs> I chalked that up to a lesson learned from Dennis Smith. I said one one last last question. So most I'm assuming most of the games, if not probably not, but most of the games you you worked this year, broadcast this year, probably nobody in the stadium. What was that like? Uh it was odd. It, it was it was challenging for us, you know, because you, you use the crowd for the emotion from them to help you with your broadcast. So we had some white noise pumped into our into our headsets. Uh, you know, Kevin Burkhart and I, after a while, decided not to do that. We felt that our our volume, our excitement, our, you know, our, our, our love of the game was coming through without having to have the white noise pump through because it kind of gave you a little bit of a headache by the end of the day. Um, so we did games in Washington, in New York, uh, in areas where the, the stands were empty. Uh, we did a game at, at Lambeau when it was empty. We also had the playoff game where they let in about 8,500 people. Um, the difference was dramatic. Uh, we did a Dallas game with about 18,000. We did a Kansas City game with about 21,000. It, it, it was amazing the difference, uh, and I'll go back to just you know the three thousand we had in New Orleans, uh, from when it was empty to when it was at three thousand in, in Lambeau, from when it was empty to when it was at eighty five hundred. Uh, just having that emotion in the stadium w- was huge. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping here in twenty twenty one we've we've got a handle on this, and 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 if if they're still reluctant to go full, we're at least getting towards fifty percent capacity, seventy five percent capacity. And speaking of that Lambo game, I want to ask you um, the, the, the suit. Were people messing with you on set there with the, the long suit? Because Twitter was having a field day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nobody there. It was an overcoat. I mean, it was it was cold. You know, you, you leave the window open at, at Lambo. It wasn't as cold as it can be, uh, but it was probably you know by halftime it was it was down in the upper twenties. <laughs> so I was not taking off the overcoat because then I'm I'm going to I'm going to get cold. So yeah, it was the best one was Barstool. Barstool hit me with it first. And I think that got everything started, but that was one of my favorite ones. You know, it's, it, it looks it looks like Daryl Johnson's getting ready to go to a speakeasy right after the game. So, uh, you know, I, I I hit them back and said, yeah, I'm just I'm just looking for the password right now to get in. So, but it, it, you know, I have fun with it. I you know, I don't I I'm never going to be a guy that wears a blue suit, a white shirt, and a blue tie. I'm I'm not I'm not going to be a G man when I'm on uh, when I'm on television. So I have fun with my uh, with my wardrobe, and some people embrace it, and some people <laughs> think I'm crazy. Everybody's a critic, but I uh, want to thank you again for taking time to chat for a few minutes. This has been a blast. Yeah, absolutely, Zach.